7.35, so any latecomers will we'll grab notes. All right, let me shut this. Okay. All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to Adult Sunday School. Um, there's a few faces that may not know who I am, so I'll introduce myself. My name is Nathaniel, and I have the distinct honor and privilege of continuing our study in Luke this morning. I want to give you a hearty and hopefully warm welcome on this day. And um, before we begin, let us seek the Lord's help in going through his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this day grateful that we can do so. Lord, as we open up your word and seek to hear the truths that which you have put in there by your sovereign power. Lord, we find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke working on a passage which teaches us much about forgiveness and what a wonderful thing it is to be forgiven. And so, Father, as, as I go through this and teach, I pray that your Spirit would give me the correct words to accurately convey the concepts which you inspired the authors to write in your word. Father, I pray that whatever is, is chaff that from my words would fall to the ground and would not be remembered, but the nuggets of truth which by your grace I communicate, I pray would be implanted deep, deep within my hearers' hearts, that they would bear great fruit. Father, we have your, your guarantee that your word will not return void. Lord, we pray that it would reap great fruit by your sovereign power this morning. We pray in Christ's name and through his blood. Amen. Alrighty. So this morning, we are going through Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, and we will finish out the chapter. A bit of uh, prelude. I will ask for a few volunteers, so if you are willing to read. I will have a couple um, verses to read. I will quickly, well not so too quickly, read our whole, our whole passage this morning, but we will go through it piece by piece as we go. And um, I have a copy of my notes and a copy of your notes in front of me, so I will do my best to give you pause and indicate where your blanks are. If I do skip one, I do apologize. Please do feel free to raise your hand or find me afterward, I'm more than happy to give you uh, the blanks. Um, so without further ado, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, 
he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? I lost my place. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So as we continue, we reach, uh, we begin in, chap- in verse 36, and we'll go 36 through 38. And on your notes, I've designated this as setting, kind of set the scene, see where we're at from last week. So Jesus and his disciples are still in the region of Nain. That is one of your blanks, the region of Nain. Now this is important Uh, Because it does tell us that this is not the same incident recorded in the three other Gospels where Jesus' feet are anointed by a woman. We can, uh, these other events are recorded in Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and John 12. Those three record the same event, those other three accounts. There are many similarities. Some of them, some chunks are almost verbatim. But the details that they give indicate that they are a different incident. It says that, that those accounts were in Bethany. This is in Nain. They say that um, the events occurred in the week before the Passover. This occurred much earlier. And so from this, we, we can see that there are two different events. And it is interesting, and later on we'll we'll touch on why it is important possibly that there are two different events where there are two different occurrences of this, this type of, of a, uh, incident. So Jesus was invited to dine with a Pharisee named Simon. This is not Simon Peter. Um, and just to indicate why Luke even went through the, the detail that he was invited to dine, um, borrowing from Sproul, who definitely went a little bit further into the culture than I was able to, to do. To be invited to dine with a Pharisee was very, very uh, honorable. It's not the same as just asking a friend, hey, come, come have dinner with me. This was a societal event. There were spectators at this event. This dinner would have occurred in a, in a portico or um, what we might call a patio kind of open air, there would be people who would watch what occurred. So this 
was not in some, just in someone's home in a, in a private uh, setting. This was, Jesus was almost on display, which in a moment we will also touch on why that is an important detail. Continuing just a little bit, when Jesus is dining, reclining, you may have uh, been taught in Sunday school previously as I was, that at uh, dinners of this nature, they weren't sitting in a chair, they weren't sitting um, cross-legged, or as my children say, crisscross applesauce. They were uh, reclining what we would call prone. Their feet were stretched out behind them. Uh, there likely was an open area where uh, servants or, or uh, servers could place different, different items. And when this woman of the city, which is a, a euphemism of the time for a, a harlot or a prostitute, when she learned that Jesus was there in the house of Simon the Pharisee, she did three very interesting and important things. The first one being she went in. This was unheard of. This was the house of a Pharisee. She was a known prostitute, a known sinner. And she, uninvited, breaks so many of the rules and societal norms by entering in to this man's house in daylight. She is known as a prostitute. According to the Mosaic law, she is, she is shunned as unclean. If she is caught, she is killed. She is stoned. So she braved reviling. She braved the insults, possibly the spit or smaller rocks of people who know who and what she is. But she doesn't care. She comes out in daylight and goes into a house where she knows not only will there be a Pharisee, but there is also Jesus, but there is also going to be spectators. So she is displaying some, some urgency or possibly some courage. Have I missed one? Okay, I have. I'm going to back up a little bit. Your blanks, she entered the house. That's your blank. Going down just a little bit. She then wept at Jesus' feet. There's another blank, wept at Jesus' feet. She washed them with her tears. So she has entered into this home in daylight. She is now drawing attention to herself by weeping. She washes his feet with her tears, which means that there's not just one or two. There's enough to make his feet wet enough to wash. That's a substantial amount of tears. And then she wipes his feet dry. I enjoy alliteration, and so there are three W's. She wept at Jesus' feet. She washed them with her tears. She wiped his feet dry with her hair. Here, too, we see an indication of what she is doing. In order to wipe his feet dry, she has to unbind her hair. In Jewish culture, there is only one occurrence where a woman may unbind her hair in public without being utterly disgraced, and that is in deep mourning. So she has gone into this place in public in daylight. She has drawn attention to herself, not just by being present, but by weeping and wiping Jesus' feet. And then she unbinds her hair. She is displaying the most abject uh, <coughs> humility, or she is humiliating herself in public. It is utterly disgraceful for a Jewish woman to unbind her hair in public and accept in mourning. And even then, for only a period of time, and then she binds it back up. Then she anoints Jesus' feet with ointment. 
So when I think of ointment, I don't think of what this was. I think of, um, I have young children, so I think of Boudreaux's butt paste. Or uh, you might think of Aquaphor, something thick, pasty. That's not what this was. This was uh, liquidy. It was a, a we, what we would call perfume. Very, very fragrant, made from myrrh. We see that in the, in the Greek, in the original, it's uh, the word muros, myrrh, which is incredibly fragrant and incredibly expensive. This was a, this, like the other occurrence in Bethany, was a great display of, of the worth that the, the woman puts because she's breaking, breaking the seal on a small flask. It can't be resealed. It has to be used within a, a pretty uh, short period of time. Myrrh was also used for two reasons in the Old Testament. It was a, one of the ingredients of the special anointing oil for Aaron, the priests, and for the furniture of the tabernacle. This particular blend with uh, a, a, significant, a significant amount of myrrh was actually forbidden to be used by anyone for anything else on pain of death. We see that in Exodus chapter 30, verses 22 through, 30, 22 through 32. The formula is given and the, the penalty for misuse of it is given as well. So it was used in the consecration of the tent of meeting and the priests. Myrrh was also used in burial ceremonies. We see this in John chapter 19 where Nicodemus is told to, have bring, to bring a lot of myrrh to anoint Jesus' body. So why am I giving all these details? This is relatively close to the beginning of Jesus' ministry in public. He is being consecrated by this woman just as at the end he is buried, both involving myrrh. So we have moved from, okay. We now move to uh, the beginning of the parable that is given. Simon the Pharisee, he derides Jesus in his heart. If this man was a prophet, if, as if to cast doubt, if we look back in the, in the previous chapters here in Luke, there are multiple instances where Jesus has displayed that he is not just a prophet, but also has great power from God. So Simon is displaying quite a bit of doubt in this, in this point. And the reason he says this is because this woman was touching Jesus. In his mind, he's a Pharisee. He, he knows the, the law to the nth degree plus all the extras that the Pharisees have added at this point. He is wondering how Jesus, who is a rabbi, would permit this woman to touch him, making him unclean. To be touched or to touch an unclean object makes one unclean until sundown. So this rabbi is now unclean, and by default, he now being unclean is now defiling the couch upon which he is laid, and the food, and everything who's there is now unclean by um, quote-unquote infection in this man's mind, possibly. So, that demonstrates just a little bit of why this was such a big deal to Simon where he said, if this man was a prophet, he'd know what was going on and he put a stop to it. And now if I could have a volunteer read verses 39 through 43. We'll begin the parable. Now when the Pharisee who had invited 
and is in Simon's heart. Jesus being the incarnate son of God, he knows what's in this man's heart. And so he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Okay? And Simon answers, say it, teacher. In my mind, that seems a bit contentious. But that may be me putting something in, and I, I don't want to uh, do that without prefacing it. But Jesus gives a parable. Jesus loves parables. And gives a, a money analogy. A money lender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, by way of reminder, a denarii is a day's wage. So to put this in terms we might more understand, when I run my mail route, I earn about eight and a half hours worth of pay, which doesn't equally because of uh, the postal system. But I'll just give a roundabout $150. So this is $150. And so one money lender owes 50 times that much. So 50 days wages, a month and a half, a significant amount of money. And the other owes 500. That's more than a year's wage. That's a lot of money. And if we look at other parables, if, there, if a man is unable to pay his debt, what occurs? He and his family are sold into slavery to pay the debt. This moneylender does not exact his due, uh, not reward, <coughs> his due recompense, I guess you could say. But he cancels the debt. So this man can afford to cancel a debt of 550 denarii, just like that. He's very wealthy, obviously. So in our own lives, if somebody cancels a debt, what is our general response? We are thankful, are we not? We, um, we're very thankful. So, the question is asked to Simon, now which one will love him more? This seems like an obvious question, does it not? I mean, obviously it's going to be the one who has more. And so Simon's answer is the one I suppose from, for whom he canceled a greater debt. Possibly Simon is sarcastic. Like, well, the one I suppose or he's confused as if this is an obvious answer. Regardless of which, which one it is, the lesson is still stated. The one who is forgiven more. And now very quickly, if I could have volunteer read verses 44 through 46, the moral will come out. Okay. So Jesus says, do you see this woman? This obviously is rhetorical. Of course he sees this woman. Otherwise, he would not have questioned uh, the, the prophethood of Jesus. This, this entire occurrence would not have occurred if Simon had not seen this woman. So Jesus is not saying something just to say it. There's a purpose. He is focusing his, Simon's attention and the hearers and ours on what is right, what is going to occur. Another, it's like saying, behold, or 
attention please or something. So we will give our attention. Do you see this woman? Simon had made three large, possibly monumental social blunders. He had not washed Jesus' feet. They wore sandals in the desert, walking around. His feet would have been caked with dirt, dust, whatever animals left on the ground that Jesus had not sidestepped. He had not welcomed Jesus as an honored guest by giving him a kiss of hospitality. And he had not anointed Jesus' head with oil. Again, this is a desert. I have short hair, but I'm sure those with longer hair uh, will, will understand that hair will dry out in the heat, in the dry heat. You have to put something on it so it's not brittle. And in the dirt and the dust and the sweat, his hair would have been a little bit gritty, a little bit muddy. And so a honoring guest would give, um, would give thought to his, a honoring host would give thought to his guest by putting a little olive oil on their head so that they can freshen up, so to speak. He had not done these three things. He had not honored Jesus as an honored guest. So one might ask, why in the world did he invite Jesus if it wasn't going to honor him? To put Jesus on display. To say, look at me, I have a, a, a respected rabbi in my home. Or because he's planning to entrap him, as the Pharisees and the scribes often did. One or the other. We aren't told which. By contrast, Jesus points to what the woman has done. She has washed Jesus' feet with her tears, washing his feet, drying them with her hair, once again, subject, um, abjecting herself. That's not the right word. Hu- um, yeah, humiliating. Humiliating herself to the point of servanthood. Let me draw your attention to John chapter 13, verses three through five. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. If you recall from this passage in John, Jesus, the rabbi, the respected one, lowers himself to the office of low servant or slave and washes the disciples' feet. A little bit of um, culture that Sproul interjects. There was a saying among the rabbis, there is no office too low for my disciple except washing feet. So this woman is putting herself in the lowest possible category. She then kissed his feet, which is a subject, a symbol of abject humiliation at the service of a rabbi. Anointing his feet with oil, again consecrating him, and possibly prefiguring his death. This is very likely, as myrrh is a, a burial spice as well. And so the question we have here is, who loved Jesus more, Simon or the woman? Again, the answer seems plain. So we move into 
verses 47 and 48. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he, being Jesus, said to her, your sins are forgiven. We see the remission. And from this is where I pulled the, the title of, of this lesson, which is simply forgiven. Her sins, which are many. Note here, Jesus does not deny her sin. Any of them. He says they are many. Instead, he forgives them. So here we have a bit of a, a possible exegetical conundrum where it would seem to where Luke is saying that she is forgiven because she loved. We must tread carefully here because that would be incorrect. That would be to signify that she is forgiven because she did something. And so it is not mercy or grace, but a deserved reward. That is not the case. Jesus does not say that her sins are forgiven because she loved much. To tell you why I say this, I must go a bit into the original Greek. I'm going to try to break it down for you, make it as simple as possible, but I don't do this lightly. This is important. The original language is very plain that, that, is, that, the, the, um, that she is not forgiven because she loved. The word forgiven, it's a verb, is in the perfect passive indicative, and it is plural. I'm going to break that all down. The perfect, all that means is it happened in the past and has ongoing results. So one might say, um, I bought a dog. It happened in the past, but I still have that dog, so it's ongoing. Okay? Passive. This is very important. It means the woman did absolutely nothing. She received the action. It's, very, it's identical to the English passive voice. She received, she received the action. She didn't do the action. Very important here. She received this forgiveness. And then indicative. This is a statement. It is not an imperative where it is a command. It is not a subjunctive where it is a possibility. It is an indicative, a fact. And then it's plural because her sins are plural. It is all of them, not one. Have I lost anybody? Okay. So we see the same in verse 48. Again, forgiven. The same... Um, parsing of the word. And then in verse 50, we have the, uh, the confirmation from Jesus' own mouth. Your faith has saved you. This tallies with what we've been taught and with what Paul says. The faith is the thing that saved her. You hear the question must be asked, where did the faith come from? Scripture is clear. The faith come from, came from God. The initial seed came from God. Again, she did nothing. And then, this is a bit more of a nerdy Greek tidbit, but it was, it was huge to me, and I hope it uh, edifies you as well. The word in, go in peace. There are two words in Greek which we can translate in, one being en, epsilon nu, or en, in. But this one's not in, it is ice, epsilon iota sigma, which means in two. Especially when it is paired with a verb of, of movement, traveling. So she, he is, Jesus is not telling her, go in peace. He is saying, go into 
peace, as if peace is a place or a, a garment. Go into peace. To me, that is immensely uh, comforting that Christ, our Savior, would not just say, go in peace, but go into peace. And then we have the impact, verses 49 and 50. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he being Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So the other diners asked, who is this even who forgives sins? This would sound very familiar as we have heard a very similar question previously. Who's this? He even forgives sin? Only God can forgive sin. So just like all the other times previously that I know Edgar has said it once and I believe Ted has as well. Did Jesus ever specifically say, I am God? Yes, he did. We'll get to those. But here he is giving proofs that he is God by saying, I forgive sin. Huge. He equates himself with God. There are commentators, among them Sproul, who said that this was the, the people spoke this in an angry tone. I didn't see it. I will, uh, I will trust his greater exegetical uh, acumen. He, is, he was extremely proficient, and I will trust that. Um, if so, then it makes sense. They are, they are angry because he's equating himself with God. In, in other passages where he, is, he does that, they understand that. They pick up stones to kill him for blasphemy. Notice also, Jesus doesn't even acknowledge these people, at least not as we're told. He may have looked at them or he may not have, but he doesn't say anything. Instead, he just focuses on the woman and says, go into peace. So for application, as we draw to a close, Simon was a Pharisee, and so he was as close as, close as humanly possible to moral perfection. Key, moral perfection. Jesus indicated that the Pharisees were the, as close as humanly possible in Matthew chapter five. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. However, Simon completely missed the point. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for their meticulous keeping of every jot and tittle of the law. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe the mint and the dill and the cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Simon was so caught up in himself, in his own righteousness and how he appeared, and this effrontery of this woman who entered his home and defiled his guest, that he failed to see the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness displayed on this woman. Here was a picture of forgiveness. And he completely missed it because he was so caught up in his own righteousness. This woman, once a notorious strumpet, a known prostitute, has experienced the cleansing, perfecting, sanctifying forgiveness of God Almighty. And he completely missed it. So for sake of time, I can't read all the uh, parables, but we have other, we have parables given by Jesus in Luke 15, 
which is the parable of the good shepherd who has 100 sheep. He loses one, and what does he do? He forsakes the 99 found to go find the one lost sheep. And what does he do when he finds it? He throws a party. says, I have found my, last, my lost sheep. Come celebrate with me. Also in Luke chapter 15, the woman with the 10 silver coins, she loses one of them. She lights a lamp, sweeps the house, searches high and low, and when she finds it, she throws a party for the coin which she has lost. And here, Jesus says, just so I tell you, this is Luke chapter 15, verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angel of God when even one sinner repents. And again, in Luke chapter 15, the end of the prodigal son. The father, when he sees his son who has demanded his inheritance while his father is still alive. The gall to say, I want what is mine and you're not even dead. And then he goes and squanders it with high living and he comes back and what does the father do? He sees him in the distance. He runs to him. He grabs the best robe in the home. He kills the fatted calf and he throws a party because his son has come home. For my son, it was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Do you see the contrast between these three? God in heaven rejoices with the angels when one sinner comes to repentance. True repentance by his mercy and by his grace. And Simon the Pharisee completely missed it. He missed the wonder of what was played out on that day. but what do we do? When you look back on your own life, are you Simon? Or are you the woman? Do we look out to the nations and we see these people? And when they die, likely having never experienced the grace of God, what do we do? If you're like me, Sometimes it makes me a little bit sad, but there are others when I'm not at all, at all sad. Bin Laden, <coughs> Stalin, Hitler. They were made in the image of God. Yes, it was perverted. Yes, it was twisted. Yes, they were utter sinners, but so were we. Those who are alive today, worldwide, do we pray for them? Are we saddened? I am not. Much of the time, for which I pray God's forgiveness and his work in my life, that I will see in them the image of God and rejoice when they come. Pray for that day and be saddened when it seems as if they were not. And then in, in just bring it real close in our own lives. In family worship, I'm teaching my children what forgiveness is. We went over how it is to apologize, the five A's. We are going over now the four promises of forgiveness. If you have never uh, heard of that, I'd be more than happy to share it with you. It is a wondrous, wondrous thing. It brings home just what it is that God has done when he forgives us. What, when, when we are forgiven, it brings it all home. And then it is something to remember when we tell someone, I forgive you, we are making four commitments by the grace of God. 
Perhaps you feel like this woman. Perhaps this has struck a note in your life. And you, like, like this woman, say, I don't have peace. I want peace. The good news is, there is peace. We can have peace with God. Christ stands ready today, right now, ready to give perfect peace. Peace that casts out all fear of condemnation to any who trust in his name on his work on the cross. Anyone, no matter how bad you've been. Hitler himself with everything he did, possibly worse, Josef Goebbels, he was the chief propaganda minister in Nazi Germany. He, can ex- he could have experienced peace. I pray he did. Sometime before his death, I pray he did. Or he's got the opposite of peace now and will never have better. Today can be the day where you experience peace. All that is needed is that you cry out to God and trust in his perfect work. If you don't know how to do that or you want to talk to it, please come find me or any of the elders or the person sitting next to you. For today can be the day of salvation where you can go into peace. Today can be that day. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are forgiven. We who trust in the work of Christ. We cannot say thank you enough or with enough feeling to accurately convey what it was for Christ to take our sins upon him on that cross and pay that price. Father, I pray that this teaching was helpful, was edifying, but ultimately, Lord, and primarily, I pray that it was glorifying to you, that your attributes were lifted high and magnified, that this day going forward, we would glorify your name for the forgiveness which you wrought, which we received without having any merit or need or with with having all the need and bringing no merit to deserve it. Father, we pray that you will bring this message, this teaching into our hearts, that it will bear great fruit, that the Holy Spirit will be active in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that if there be any here who have not this peace, that they will cry out to you for this peace. We pray for corporate worship to come. We pray that you would continue to be glorified, magnified, and extolled in our song, in the teaching, and in the prayer. We pray it all in Christ's name.